Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Coming up in the second hour, crop circle filmmaker and researcher Patty Greer returns to the program. There's something rather peculiar happening with crop circles, or should I say not happening. We're in the midst of crop circle season, and yet there have been very few crop circle formations reported, about five so far, Patty tells me, right now. My guest is going to discuss the state of individual freedoms in America. At its core, constitutional lawyer Jonathan Emord says power today is being exercised by something called the administrative state, which is a product of authoritarian socialist ideology, which he credits to the 19th century German philosopher Hegel. His new book is called The Authoritarians, Their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th Century to the Present. In other words, how did we get to where we're at? Jonathan W. E. Mord has been practicing constitutional and administrative law before the federal courts and agencies since 1985. In fact, I believe he's the only lawyer in U.S. history to defeat the FDA in court something like eight times. Having begun his career as an attorney in the Federal Communications Commission during the administration of President Ronald Reagan, Emort has maintained an abiding conviction to achieve full First Amendment protection for the freedoms of speech and press. In 1991, he authored the critically acclaimed Freedom, Technology, and the First Amendment, in which he chronicled the intellectual foundations of the First Amendment and advocated replacing government control over the airwaves with a title registry, private property rights approach. Previously, Jonathan has authored Global Censorship of Health Information. Now, that book came out back in 2010, but wow, that's really timely, I would say. The Rise of Tyranny and Restore the Public. Jonathan Emord, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Just fine. Good to be with you again, Richard. How are you? Very well, very well. So this is a thick book, like 500 pages. We're just going to scratch the surface tonight, obviously. So let's talk about the roots of authoritarianism or socialism in America. And you say it goes back to a pre-antebellum South. Let's dive in right there. When and how did socialism take root in pre-antebellum South? Well, in the 1830s, the Southerners who were principally responsible for defending the institution of slavery, were under tremendous attack, and it only increased in its ferocity from abolitionists in the North. And they were uh, vexed by the power of the arguments being made by abolitionists. Abolitionists were criticizing Southerners for not only the lack of morality associated with slavery, that is, its immorality, But also, uh, they were criticizing them uh, because they had violated the fundamental precepts of the Declaration of Independence, not least of which is all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
uh, and the governments were instituted among men to protect those rights. So the abolitionists were taking the position that uh, Southerners were violating that most basic charter of the American Republic and that they uh, were disgracing their ancestors who had fought in the American Revolution. And so in response to that, uh, a number of Southerners then began to question whether they should continue to respect Thomas Jefferson and the, the Declaration or reject it. And it became a popular rallying cry uh, that they rejected, uh, finding that it's, it's a fiction that all men are created equal. Clearly, all men are not created equal, they argued, and that uh, Thomas Jefferson's position was bunk and that the Declaration is based on uh, a falsehood. And they then advanced the idea uh, based on Hegelian uh, socialism. Friedrich Hegel was the architect of collectivism, and his philosophy was well known to the Southerners, and they adopted it uh, directly, um, overtly, and even proclaimed socialism to be what they were defending. In fact, uh, if you take a look at what Edmund Ruffin, who is a prominent uh, Virginian, he's in fact the one who said that he, 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 he lied about this, but he said that he was the one to fire the first shot at Fort Sumter commencing the Civil War. That was not true. But he had said uh, that, uh, along with George Fitzhugh, that um, the institution of slavery, that is plantation slavery, was the beau ideal of socialism, actually, Fitzhugh went farther. He said it was the beau ideal of communism. And so that's the origin of this intellectual uh, construct within the United States. Socialism had its root right there in the 1830s. So that's going to come as a, a huge shock to many people. I mean, I have friends and family who consider themselves to be socialist. They're fed up with capitalism, and capitalism is a failure. But if we go back to uh, pre-antebellum South, you're saying that slavery actually is a socialist idea. It is very much so. And in fact, Friedrich Hegel justified slavery in his construct of collectivism. That's why the Southerners adopted it. They, they, Hegel had said that uh, slavery was merely a reflection of the fact that a superior race had defeated or would be defeating an inferior race, and that it, throughout history, whenever a superior race defeated an inferior race, the inferior race was most frequently enslaved. He said this is not a bad thing. He said it's actually good for both parties. That's interesting, because yeah. we often hear from people that, oh, that's colonialism. We have to tear this statue down and that statue down, because they were colonialists, and that the history of vanquished peoples is seen through that lens. The colonialists are part of the British Empire, and that gets tied in with free markets and capitalism. So what you're saying is a complete departure from that. Yeah, in fact, lies are the currency of the Marxist. And so what you find is that they rewrite history. And that was what Hegel actually did. And not only that, Woodrow Wilson, for example, is a strong Hegelian, a socialist by his own admission, in his own writings. And you find that this adoption in the progressive era of socialism, again, is, 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 is a falsehood. It's based on a phony conception that somehow enslaving yourself to the state, 
which is socialism, is preferable to free labor, that is, capitalism. That an individual is in a worse state when that individual has freedom of choice among employers than that individual is when control cradled to grave by the state. So the falsehood is that somehow socialism is liberating and that it's liberating labor. The actual uh, circumstances that socialism everywhere imposed enslaves labor because the employer is the government and the government sets by law the terms for employment and uses a bureaucracy to determine who gets employed under what circumstances and their wages and so on. There's no freedom in that at all. That's entirely giving a monopoly to the state. Right. So, we so are this idea far that far better off. Th- and by the way, this debate went raged uh, between Abraham Lincoln, believe it or not, who defended free labor, and John C. Calhoun and others in the South who defended what they called the mudsill theory, which was that there there had to be a class that is kept doing the most menial labor in order for another class to excel, that is, to live at a higher standard of living, and that this was necessary for the progress of humanity. Again, in in socialism, we look at collectivism. We look at the collective. It's a hypothetical. We don't know what uh, a body of people believe. body of people don't believe anything, but there's ascribed beliefs by the socialist. Right. It's like a forest. There's no such thing as a forest. There's only individual Correct. trees. Right. And and when you talk about rights, they have to be individual rights. If you talk about collective rights, it's a fiction. And what happens is the socialist tries to confuse the public into thinking that there are such things as collective rights. And what they merely do is define policies and ascribe to them rights if you follow the state, do what the state wants you to do. Everything else is prohibited. Well, that's not, uh, that's not individual liberty. That's not individual protection of rights. That's slavery and denial of individual rights. So the rulers in the state, those that believe that they are intellectually superior to those that they are ruling over, and this is justified because, again, the, the conqueror, must be superior to the vanquished, otherwise they wouldn't have been successful in conquering them. This sounds like social Darwinism, but didn't Hegel predate Darwin? Yes, but it fits in quite nicely with social Darwinism, and that's in fact a catalyst, as I explain in the book, it is a catalyst actually to the progressive era and the progressive movement. What happened was, although the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, it didn't abolish socialist thinking, not, not by a long shot. And in fact, socialist thinking then led academics into the, into the notion that you could create a government outside the Constitution's limits and outside of the concept of individual liberty that is inherent in the United States Constitution through the administrative state. Now, if you followed the framers' construct... For example, if we take uh, George Washington's words, let there be no change by usurpation, for though in one instance it may be an instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. And by that he meant that we may not change the Constitution without an amendment. Why? 
because of the language in the Declaration. That is, just governments are predicated on the consent of the governed. Well, the people of the United States, through the ratification process, through their representatives, consented to the language of the Constitution and the powers invested in the three branches and the limitations on those powers and the protection of rights. Well, if you change that construct, you have to proceed by amendment, again, seeking the consent of the governed, because in Lockean terms, under the Second Treatise on Government, John Locke made this express, that if you rule without consent, you have no legitimacy. And it's merely tyranny. So you can impose your will and without limitation. And that's what happened with the administrative state. Although, it, under following the Constitution, they would have had to, under Article 5, sought a constitutional amendment and achieved it. They instead had a major power grab in which they created the administrative state for the very express purpose, when you read their, their writings, the express purpose of avoiding the limitations on power in the Constitution, the separation of powers, and the checks and balances of the Constitution. And so they achieved John. that magnificently, grossly, in the administrative state, which has combined legislative, executive, and judicial power, which James Madison defined as the very definition of tyranny. All right, let me uh, just uh, reset here. Jonathan W. E. Moore, my guest, constitutional lawyer, the book is The Authoritarians. Now, let's just back up just a bit, because when we're talking about the administrative state, we have to sort of find out how we got to that point, because you point out that after the Civil War, you had all of these intellectuals that wanted to become university professors, influencers, obviously, in charge of young minds. And so they went to Germany, Hegel's home, where Hegel had set up all of these schools. So when these American academics, intellectuals, went to Germany and studied in Hegel's school, what did they learn? And then what did they bring back? From the period roughly the 1860s forward, hundreds of academics from the United States flocked to Germany. Germany was considered to be, in academia at the time, an ideal construct of education in the graduate level because they created what we have adopted as the method for graduate education. And scholars from all of the major universities in the United States went to Germany and studied under professors who taught in the historic schools, they were called, the Hegelian concept of collectivism. And, and that teaching denounced expressly the American Constitution, the American Declaration of Independence, the notion, Lockean notion of rights, that individual rights exist, that the governments are instituted to protect those rights, and declared that to be rubbish, saying that actually individuals never have rights, that it's always the collective that has rights, that rights come from the state, not from God. The notion of the Founding Fathers was that rights are, are, bequests, are bequests that are given to each individual at birth and are unalienable, cannot be taken away by the state. The Hegelians taught that the greatest virtue for an individual was to pursue the policy direction set by the state, and that it was not to be set by democratic institutions, but rather was to be set by experts in an administrative state who could best discern what was in the quote-unquote common good. A technocracy. Uh, yes, an oligarchy of experts 
That's what they said needed to exist. And so they established the benefits arising from the administrative state to be efficiency and to be advancement, progress, beyond that which was ever possible by the cumbersome, slow constitutional process of a republic. And so they trained these academics to denounce or hate their own government, the Republic of the United States. They came back and fulfilled the wishes of their professors in Germany by building an academic, an academia that was dedicated to the same thing, denouncing the Constitution, advocating changes that would result in a loss of constitutional governance and an increase in autocratic or authoritarian power through the administrative state, which would have combined legislative, executive, and judicial powers, and would would pursue the common interests defined by uh, eggheads, individuals who are said right. to be academically superior to common people. This is fascinating because many of us sit back and we think, well, this revolution, this cultural revolution started in the 1960s. But actually, it started maybe in the 1860s, the late 1860s. That's correct. It very much did. And by 1881, we had our first federal bureaucracy in the Interstate Commerce Commission preceding 1881. From 1860 to 1880, numerous independent regulatory commissions were established at the state level by individuals who were avowed socialists, governors who were socialists, and by academics who were socialists. Socialism became very popular at this time in academia, and it was along the Hegelian model. It's noteworthy that Karl Marx was a student of Hegel's and was a dedicated student of Hegel. He just took Hegelian socialism farther to a more brutal communism, but nonetheless, it's a slippery slope. Once you're on that socialist slide, you end up with communism because invariably power just aggregates power unchecked simply grows and right the ultimate right what's that that was it Anne Rand who said communism is murder socialism is suicide we're going to take a time out jonathan when we come back so we're, we're getting into this the beginning the very early stages of the progressive era the beginning of the administrative state and of course then under you know about 50 years later that is accelerated under FDR, and in the, in the authoritarians, you list, I think there are three pages just listing all of the federal agencies, dozens and dozens and dozens of federal agencies created by FDR, who was a great admirer of Mussolini. They had kind of this mutual admiration society going on. Remember, Mussolini, the fascist, FDR, wanted to send representatives over to study this wonderful progressive Mussolini character. We'll come back. Jonathan W. E. Mord, the uh, author of The Authoritarians, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Jonathan W. E. Mord, constitutional lawyer, and his latest is The Authoritarians, Their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th Century to the Present. Let's bring it up to the 1930s, FTR, the New Deal, the creation of dozens and dozens and dozens of federal agencies. The idea is that they are now circumventing Congress. They are making law. What percentage of law is, or let's say... 
under FDR was being made by federal agencies rather than by Congress and the president? Roughly, what percentage would you say? So two years into the New Deal, we have the NRA, the, the National Recovery Administration, and also we have total government control over agriculture. The NRA controlled every aspect of production, of pricing for products, and of supply and distribution. In other words, it was total government control along that fascist Mussolini type of model. And when you ask the question then, what percentage of law, well, even though the regulatory state was was nascent, it was nonetheless expansive and extensive, so much so that every aspect of commerce was controlled by the federal government uh, in the uh, first New Deal and then uh, um, less so after the Supreme Court struck down the New Deal. But the second New Deal reintroduced redistribution of income as a primary means, but also several agencies continued under one form or another. Um, the NRA of, uh, was, was ultimately rejected because it was an utter disaster. But you, you, you could reasonably say that at a minimum, more than half of all federal law at that time was the result of the administrative state, not the Congress of the United States, not the elected representatives of the people. Now, fast forward to the present, and it is easily over three-quarters of all federal law uh, is the product of the unelected heads of the administrative agencies, not those we elect. In other words, 75 percent. Administrative state is the true government of the United States. Right. So when President Trump was busy deregulating, and we saw those huge—it was a wonderful visual—those huge stacks of paper, and you know, look, we cut 12 million regulations today. That was a direct attack on the administrative state. Now, uh, some people call it the deep state, but let's use the term administrative state. That must have been a huge, huge threat to them. Yes, but what what we found in the Reagan administration, um, if you simply deregulate, then when socialists get back in power, or even when they don't, when when less aggressive presidents who are conservative are in power, the administrative state regrows and reestablishes its original control and expands beyond it. In other words, it's an ever-growing, gargantuan machine. And what we have with the Trump deregulation is classic deregulation. What we had with Reagan in the administrative state, and I know this directly having been involved with the Reagan Federal Communications Commission, was deregulation which as much as possible was predicated on constitutional grounds. So, for example, at the Federal Communications Commission, uh, Mark Fowler, who was chairman of the FCC, and Dennis Patrick, who was chairman of the FCC in succession, um, eliminated the fairness doctrine based on its violation of the First Amendment. And that makes it extremely difficult to re-regulate a fairness Ah. doctrine, it being... Uh, held against against the high law, highest law of the land. So when you do that, then it's not uh, open for policy choice. When you simply say, "Oh, circumstances have changed; we're no longer we no longer see benefit from a regulation," then when the new administration comes in, like Biden, 
he massively re-regulates and goes beyond simply by declaring the prior judgment of the agency to be in error because it's an agency judgment that has no superior law force to constrain it. In the end, the only solution for us if we were are to have individual liberty and protection for rights and to recognize the sovereignty of the individual as was the very purpose of the Constitution of the United States, you have to get rid of the administrative state because it is illegitimate from the get-go. The transfer of power under Article One, for example, of the Constitution, all legislative power is invested in the Congress of the United States. Not some, uh, all. And right. only the Congress of the United States has constitutional authority to create law. And yet, the administrative state creates law and does it unconstitutionally in violation of the vesting clause, it's called, of Article One. The same is true with respect to the Article Three power, which is exclusive to the judiciary, and I would argue the same is true for the executive power. So the, the administrative state actually entirely defeats the Constitution, because if you're caught up in it, if you're the accused, all of your rights are taken from you. You have right. I wanted to ask you about that, Jonathan. Uh, so uh, you, you run afoul of the EPA, let's say. Uh, do they have to have a warrant? They are allowed to use what is, in fact, a general warrant. Now, a general warrant is issued by an executive magistrate, not by a judge, and it can ask for anything. And so general warrants in England were used by the courts of Star Chamber and High Commission from about the 14th century forward until the 17th century. And they were despised by the people because a magistrate working essentially as a surrogate for the crown could go after an enemy of the crown and obtain all of their information, rifle through all of their files, all of their uh, papers, and uh, gather up witnesses and so forth, and then haul the person before the Court of Star Chamber or High Commission, and they would have to answer for any number of accusations without any advance notice and without having an independent judiciary decide the propriety uh, of, of the search in the first place, the probable cause that would justify it. What crime right. has this man or this woman committed? And so while the Founding Fathers uh, prohibit in the Constitution use of general warrants, they have come, a, come alive again in the administrative state, which uses general warrants routinely in the United States, and the hapless person who is accused has no choice but to turn over all of these documents. Do you have a right to face your accuser? And Yes, and there's no right to uh, know who your accuser is. So when the administrative mm. state attacks you, you don't know who's responsible for the charge. Not only that, you're essentially guilty until you've proven yourself innocent, reversing the constitutional presumptions. And furthermore, you have no right to a jury trial. The party that is prosecuting you is also the judge, and in that there can be no justice at all. You're always guilty. Unbelievable. And, What's their conviction yeah. rate, Jonathan? What's their conviction rate? Well, it's 100%. Uh, <laughs> the only instance where it deviates, and they're very rare, is when the administrative state itself decides what it has done is, is, is wrong, and that's a very rare circumstance. 
as the as Joshua Wright, who is an FD, FTC Federal Trade Commission commissioner, said in a, in a moment of extraordinary uh, truthfulness and revelation for one of these uh, bureaucrats, he said he had looked at decades of FTC decisions, and he had found that in every instance where an administrative law judge, that is a judge that they control within the agency, and not an independent judge in an Article Three court, that whenever a judge, an administrative law judge, had found in favor of the accused, the commission on review reversed. And in every instance in which the person had been found by the administrative law judge to have violated the law, it was upheld. So that, in other words, in 100% of the cases, the commission found itself to be right. That should not surprise us, because when you conjoin the power to prosecute with the power to judge, you, you can have no justice. It's an inherent conflict of interest. You can't be an independent judge and yet be charged with prosecuting a party. And So when Trump these, was being uh, – when he was caught up in this whole you know, Russia hoax, uh, and then there was the, um, the call to the ambassador in Ukraine, uh, was he being – was he being prosecuted again by the administrative state in this case? Yes, and in this case, it it, it ends up being a, a most uh, um, a grossly unjust prosecution because you have uh, an agency of the government, and also in complicity with the Congress of the United States, the majority party, the Democratic Party, and they were alleging that there were. Uh, enormous amounts of information accessible only to them because it had to be kept secret uh, that proved beyond uh, doubt that, that Trump was guilty of complicity with the Russians and so forth. And all of that was entirely fabricated. So what you had was an attempt at a, a coup d'etat. You had, this is, this is, this is the, the zenith of administrative state achievement is when the administrative state is not only a separate uh, government, but is the superior government. When it draws from the uh, duly elected branches and, and the judiciary, the federal judiciary, independent judiciary, all power such that uh, they become largely irrelevant and it becomes the decision-making institution, it, uh, it then is in a position to actually affect a coup d'etat like this. And so what we had was an, uh, an attempt to overthrow uh, a duly elected president and doing it through the administrative state on, on, on wholly uh, fabricated grounds. As we know, the warrants... That Jonathan, sorry, uh, I've got to yeah. jump in here. We're going to take a time out. Pardon the interruption. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. We also, uh, I want to talk about favored enterprises. This is where fascism begins to creep in so I, I, I we're getting a pretty good picture here 75 percent of laws today are uh, created enacted by unelected unaccountable technocrats the experts the people that uh, know best for uh, the rest of us great unwashed back with uh, more of my conversation with jonathan e mord the author of the authoritarians right here on the conspiracy show don't go away You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. So, 
America is ruled by an administrative state. They produce 75% of the law, not the Congress, not the president uh, enacting the law. It is this administrative state or the deep state, unelected, unaccountable. Uh, these, these federal agencies that are running the country, they have their own court system, star chambers, uh, where the accused is guilty until proven innocent. They have a 100% conviction rate. You don't have a, 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 a right to face your accuser. All the, the major tenets of uh, the judicial system, supposedly, are thrown out the window. And uh, to add to this, uh, Jonathan, you know, a lot of younger people um, are disenchanted with capitalism. And, and they say, well, it's, it's the, the rich ruling over the poor and the, the dividing wage, you know, the dividing um, income gap and all of these things. They blame capitalism. But it's really the, the, the inequities that are produced by this corporatist state that we now have. Talk to me about how the corporate estate e- emerged and, and the role of something called favored enterprises. Well, in this time period uh, of the progressive era, actually immediately uh, after the Civil War with the rise of industrialization in the United States, um, we have huge demographic shifts that are taking place with people moving from rural areas into the cities, exactly the opposite of what's happening now. Uh, and you have much uh, considerable social change, too, with large influx of immigrants coming from Europe. And it was very unsettling for elites, for those who had been accustomed to uh, uh, being a ruling class in these, in these uh, uh, urban areas before the influx of all these changes. And they had also been uh, economically superior people because they had lived at the top of an agrarian, largely agrarian society. Now with capitalism, you have a rush of people who were poor coming into the middle class. In fact, during this period, we have the largest increase in economic wealth among people in the history of the world in the United States taking place with a burgeoning middle class and with people for the first time achieving magnificent wealth. Uh, and it was oftentimes rags to riches and then back to rags again, but it was rags to riches. And uh, it was an upwardly mobile, very dynamic capitalist uh, environment. Well, that's a very uncomfortable environment, not only for the elites, but also for captains of industry who suddenly realize that without consolidation of industry to the extent that they can monopolize, They are liable to lose, that is, go from riches to rags, um, because of innovation coming into the market. And so you have all of these magnates trying to create monopolies. Now, what Gabriel Kolko, brilliant economist, uh, and Murray Rothbard, another brilliant economist, uh, really definitively have shown, and there are many, many now who chime in 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 the world of economics on this point, they were never successful in producing monopolies in the marketplace. The only way they achieved it was through government intervention. So, for example, the Granger movement uh, was essentially a, a movement by farmers, particularly poor farmers, to get government help to set to fix the rates of rail transportation so that they could afford to move grain. 
Now, the reality was they could afford to move grain, and there was quite a bit of competition among the rails using a rebate system. But what the, uh, what the, what the grangers wanted to do was basically produce even lower rates to their advantage. And what happened was the government stepped in, purportedly on behalf of the grangers, but then rapidly became influenced, lobbied by the railroad uh, magnates who were able to pump money into campaigns and heavily control political uh, fortunes. And they succeeded in taking, co-opting the, the populist movement for rate setting, and they set rates at monopoly levels, and they had anti-rebate laws, which eliminated their competition, that is, new entrants, and they secured monopoly control through uh, a, com- a combination with the government. This then happens over again and again and again in various industries. Uh, even the communications industry by the 1930s, actually the late 1920s. So, right. Excuse me, Jonathan. This is a this is a short segment. We're going to take a break. This was just a short six minute segment. We'll come back and pick up on this uh, in a moment. But and and today, of course, we're seeing we're seeing this favored enterprise with with big tech, uh, with big pharma. Uh, Elon Musk, I suppose you could you could argue has benefited greatly from this. And and so, but people blame. Uh, capitalism for uh, these huge income disparities and so forth and wealth disparities between the very, very rich and and the very, very poor. But in fact, they, it's not capitalism and free markets to blame. It's, it's corporatist uh, America and this, this favored enterprise system, which is fascism, really. Yeah, we'll uh, pick up on that. Corporate, for the corporate class. Right. We'll pick up on this uh, on the other side. Jonathan E. Mord, The Authoritarians, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just a few minutes remain with Jonathan E. Mord. Jonathan, I'm going to have to have you back because uh, we really need, you know, uh, a lot more uh, airstrip here to discuss this stuff. Uh, um but I, I want to get back to uh, corporatist state and favored enterprises. And if we look at the Green New Deal, for example, it's kind of a classic example where the uh, the, the, the state is picking winners and losers in the uh, in the green energy field. Uh, we saw that under Obama. They're basically telling uh, consumers, we don't care that you want cheap oil and gas to run your vehicles and heat your homes. Uh and that you want reliable energy, we are deciding for you that we, you will have unreliable, intermittent energy, solar, and and wind. Um, I don't understand at the top why they would want to destroy the golden goose. Why are they doing this? Is this about a wealth transfer to China? What's going on here? Well, it's about control. It's about acquiring power over the most significant industry in the country. That is the backbone, the very backbone of the economy, the fossil fuel economy. So if you can obliterate fossil fuels and compel people to rely on intermittent and unreliable sources like solar and wind, then you have achieved that degree of control over people and you've rendered them helpless, essentially, because... You, you destroy the capitalist system by doing this. You absolutely do. 
Um, and any, you know, take a look at California, how reliable their energy system is as they progressively move in this direction in advance of the federal effort nationally. So it's, it's not uh, a, a hidden enterprise, actually. AOC, her chief of staff, was communicating with a governor, uh, governor's assistance on climate change early on in this process of developing this Green New Deal proposal. And he, he laughed at them when they were talking about this as an environmental measure because he said, no, we're doing this in order to bring about socialism. We're, we're doing, this is a Trojan, he didn't say this, but it, what he's effectively saying is that this is a Trojan horse for the delivery of socialism to America. Total state control over the market. You're exactly right. Corporatism, picking winners and losers, destroying the existing system of free enterprise, it gives us cheap energy that's very clean, and replacing it with actually what's quite toxic, solar panels and windmills that acquire, require vast stretches of an entire real estate equal to entire states to put these bird-killing windmills into operation so and bat-killing. Uh, so... It is, a, it is a lie. First of all, it's a lie that it's an environmentally superior method of energy. Second, it's a lie that it could ever be reliable and uh, could replace on equal terms the energy generated from fossil fuels. And third, it is a lie that people's lives would not be adversely affected. We would be driven into the Stone Age by this, uh, this transformation. It would ruin our countries, bring them absolutely down, and invite... The, the uh, communists in China and and in Russia to basically rule the world. So what's in it for, I don't know, the, the Gavin Newsom's and uh, uh, the, the AOC's? Do they think that once all of this wealth is transferred to China and China basically takes over, uh, that they will be rewarded somehow? Well, truth be told, they have no problem with the ideology uh, because they believe in it. Uh, Communism is what what they really believe in. And they don't have a problem in it because they become the solution to every problem. In other words, once you have a centralized government uh, 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 plan to replace the existing system of energy with this solar energy, and you have planned economies, just like in the Soviet Union, planned economies then they are in a position of controlling it. They are jealous of power. They would never want to give power away to the Chinese. They want it for themselves, but they want also to destroy all other aspects of the constitutional system. If they could be dictators indefinitely throughout their lives, that's what they would like, And and their move is in that direction. They don't, it's an inconvenience to have to answer to the American people. They want total control. Okay, we've got about six minutes here, uh, which is you know ri- a ridiculous task. But let's let's talk about some of the solutions. And I, I I would love to have you back on, and we'll do two hours if if you'd be good for that. Um, sure. You, you talk about how people need to number one, we, they need to defend their property. They need to go after looters and arsonists and so forth. Uh, they need to sue the people that are behind the looters and the arsonists. But doesn't that require you know the rule of law? Uh, aren't these same elites, haven't they also infiltrated the court system? I mean, you, you, the, 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 the father of this whole progressive era, I think you mentioned, it was a Supreme Court justice. 
uh, I mean, can we can you rely on the courts anymore? Well, of all of the branches of the government, the judiciary has been the least affected by these changes. Without question, there has been, you mentioned that Justice Felix Frankfurter, he was an advocate of the administrative state. He was a socialist, and he advocated the administrative state uh, and administrative law adjudication. But the Article Three courts remain the strongest bastions, as do the state courts, even though they have, without a doubt, bad apples in them. The point here is that when your police don't uh, provide you with protection, when they have been essentially disabled by this defund the police movement and by elimination of bail and so forth, uh, such that you are simply uh, uh, sitting ducks for criminals because there's no police presence, to, to help you. You have to resort to methods of self-protection, uh, and that means you have to exert protection for your rights through the courts and through self-help, with, uh, with, uh, in the case of the United States, your Second Amendment right. Uh, your Second Amendment right to be armed and to, and to protect your property and your lives against those who would destroy your property and would take your life. So that's a fundamental uh, and... and uh, and 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 a right that no one can take from you the right of self defense well so, they're trying they're trying awfully hard aren't they you're right you're right and so people have to think in advance assume that their houses would be taken that their property would be uh, uh violated and destroyed and and burned and uh looting could take place in their businesses and burning of their businesses arson and they have to think of that in advance and do things that create a defense. Put in uh, cameras to observe. Be armed. Try to be in your business. Try to have others in your business. Try to make sure that you have the ability to react. Don't necessarily depend on the police. Rely on uh, your own means. But in addition to that, track down those who violate your rights and prosecute them through the civil law, through tort uh, law and go after them for their property. This was very effectively done by Senator Tom Cotton and, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., when, uh, when, when people uh, uh, protested in front of his house and actually threatened his wife and then came uh, uh, with a newborn baby and, and uh, trespassed on his property and so forth. He, he then has gone after them not in the most hospitable courts in the world, that is the District of Columbia courts, but nonetheless, ultimately, he can get uh, uh, defense for his position in the Court of Appeals. Now, this is expensive, okay. I know. And what about, uh, we just got a, a couple minutes here, but what about uh, reversing this whole administrative state system? Is it too late? No. And in fact, we are in a position now, uniquely, to make some substantial changes. I think for the first time, many Americans are receptive to this message that in the next election, in 2022, we're likely to see the House, if not the Senate, turned uh, into hands that are in favor of these kinds of measures. And we have to understand, it's not enough to win the election. We have to dismantle the administrative state. We have to do that if we really mean to be free, if we believe in individual liberty, and if we, if we believe that individuals should be sovereign and that the state should be their servant, not the other way around, we have to take advantage of the election, and it must be beyond simply winning and stopping 
the bleeding that's going on and the destruction of free enterprise. We have to go beyond that. We have to dismantle the administrative state. That is the answer to taking socialism out of the government. All right, uh, Jonathan. Again, I, I, I have to get you back on, and we have to. We have. We need more time. Basically, would you be good for that? Uh, maybe um, sure, sometime over the summer. Fantastic. This is so important. Uh, the authoritarians, their assault on individual liberty, the Constitution, and free enterprise from the 19th century to the present. Uh, Jonathan, thank you again. We'll talk soon. You're quite welcome. Thank you. All right. When we come back, we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk crop circles. A little fun, a little uh, excitement with Patty Greer, crop circle filmmaker extraordinaire. Stay with us. Stay with us. 